0: listen to the stick to wrestling podcast i want to thank culture club for writing that song in honor of their favorite podcast stick to wrestling my name is john mcadam and there are some good podcasts out there there are some very good podcasts but are any other podcasts wicked good i don't think so man stick to wrestling give us 60 minutes and we will perhaps indeed give you a raw bone podcast and before i bring on my convivial co-host sean goodwin I want to tell everyone what I'm wearing. I am wearing a fleece sweatshirt that I bought 19 years ago, February 2001 at WWF New York. I'm so you're saying WWE now. It was WWF New York. Uh, had a good time. My friend and I got a bill for $135 for two burgers two ice cream sundaes, and like this six-pack of beer that they put in ice things. So welcome to New York, everyone. And with that, my convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin. Sean, happy 2020.
1: Happy 2020 to uh, yourself and to Lou, of course. And you need to put a picture of your shirt up on the Facebook page, which <laughs> since we uh, bring that up, if you, and I mean you, have not joined the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page, this is what you missed this week. Who did Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago? Why is Red Bastine wearing a toga? Who the hell was beautiful Bobby Remus? Why was Roddy Piper mad at Bill Aptor? And why is Oli looking at you like that? Plus, John's daily results, the YouTube clips that you uh, that Lou brilliantly puts together, and old school videos, clippings. What else could you possibly want?
0: I couldn't imagine. But you know what? If someone wanted a picture of a raggedy old, ni- raggedy 19-year-old thing, I'd put up a picture of me and my girlfriend from 1984. With that, our guest also has a, a an Arcadian Vanguard podcast uh, podcast. Uh, he has his own Facebook page. It was very page. smooth,
2: John. It was very smooth.
0: Very smooth. I get smoother by the day. <laughs> and on in Jeff's uh, Breaking Kayfabe uh, Facebook page, I recently noted that Joe Montana was the worst, uh, the most overrated figure in team sports history. And I would like to retract that. There's no need to say team sports.
1: Uh, well, one quick thing before Jeff, uh, just to make a note that Jeff and Barry have uh, gorgeous Jimmy on this week. Yes.
2: We have a two-part episode. He's going to be returning for the second part. We only got up to about 19. Oh, I think we covered 79. He had not yet become gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. Fantastic interview. Guy had been in a million territories. Guy started in the wrestling business when he was like 13 years old, selling yep. sodas at the Fort Homer Hestley Armory in Tampa. Got
1: the job from uh, John's hero, Chief J.
2: Joe Scarpa, the man of, he was victimized more than Dusty back in the day.
1: Oh, yeah. So, well, that
0: is, that's fantastic. Jim Garvin is one of those guys, I've been around him. He is, he is one of those guys. He's more funnier and more charismatic off camera than he is
2: on. He was a great guest. That's all I know. <laughs> okay. I'm still When's trying to, I'm out? still trying to. To process the fact that you feel Joe Montana is overrated, but then again, this is somebody who feels Casey Clausen was a great quarterback, so, you know, I digress.
0: I never said he was a great quarterback. <laughs> Montana or Clausen.
2: Uh, well, that just proves you know nothing about sports. But Anyway, <laughs> I'll call you Boy John since you're a Culture Club fan.
0: The Culture Club. That's what I meant to call them last week, and I was going to list like their their greatest hits, like you know, not only "Come On Eileen" but um, "The Safety Dance." I had a couple of other ones, and then what happened was what actually happened was better.
2: Lou is nothing if not on top of things.
0: <laughs> no, I've got to cut right in, John. I'm sorry, but uh... it's great. So let's talk about Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards 1989. This is our third and final uh, chapter in that segment. And I'm glad we're doing this. I'm glad Jeff was able to come on for a third time because 1989 was simply an amazing year when it came to match of the year candidates. Um, I think. There are four matches from this year, maybe maybe more like three, that would have won any other year, like 86, 88, 85. They were that good. Number one was Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, uh, the Clash of the Champions match from from April 2nd in New Orleans. Number two was the Nashville match, uh, May 7th, where Flair regained the title from Steamboat, and we had the Terry Funk angle. Number three was Flair and Steamboat from Chicago, February 20th, where Steamboat won the title. Number four, Ric Flair and Terry Funk, the I Quit match from Troy, New York. Uh, Number five, Jushin Liger against Naoki Sano. Jeff, what are your thoughts on the match of the year?
2: Uh well, let's see. Uh, I of course during my uh, my article on the uh, the best of the '80s, uh, I picked the the Nashville matches, my uh, my best match of the decade. But I've talked to both Flair and Steamboat since then, and they both thought that New Orleans was better. Uh, I thought technically it was a brilliant match. I just you know sort of uh, chopped it down a couple uh notches because the crowd was so completely dead. Uh, the people in the sport, you know, in the, uh, in the Superdome, uh, it was not like a Saints game. It was just a dead crowd. Chicago had a better crowd, quite frankly. The uh, the Funk matches, yeah, you know, you didn't mention the Bash match. Was that in the top ten?
0: That was in. That was number seven.
2: Okay, uh, and uh, Liger and Sano was a great match, but I thought their match in January of ninety was a little bit better. Um, I agree. So yeah, I mean, that's that. I I personally go. Uh, I would go probably the Nashville flair steamboat. Then I'd go, uh, Chicago. Uh, then I'd go, uh, I quit from Troy, New York, then New Orleans. And then the bash. That's what, that would be the way I would go my top five. Cause you know, John, you were, you were there with me for the, uh, for the bash match in Baltimore, correct?
0: I definitely was. I mean, we, yeah, were, we was... weren't sitting together, but we yeah. were hanging out for the weekend.
2: Well, your loss of course, but you know, the, uh, the way that, uh, Rick Flair, the, the joke was, was that at the end of the match, he looked like a Christmas tree yeah. because he had been sprayed with a couple of different sprays and it was just great. And the, the brawl going back in and, and sitting, sitting like in the second row, that was like, uh, just so much fun. And, and, uh, it was one of those rare times when you have a match where you've got this built up to like, what's it going to be? What's, you know, the expectations were so high and they completely nailed it
0: they did i remember we were there i mean terry funk says i'm going to have a surprise and he comes walking down the ramp with gary hart and my immediate reaction was no terry funk doesn't need to be watered down like that
2: yeah no terry gary hart definitely was not uh, uh adding to that situation gary you know gary hart should have stuck with uh, stuck with muda he, uh, he added nothing but uh, his usual not selling anything for the world champion. So uh, I was not at that point a huge Gary Hart fan at all. Same here. Yeah.
0: So, Sean, your thoughts. Wrestler of the Year 1989.
1: I actually prefer the, uh, the, new, uh, the two out of three falls match, but Jeff brings up a good point. There was wasn't a good crowd there. Um, I, I, I'm really star- – I know technically the Steamboat matches are better, but I'm really starting to lean more toward the funk matches because those were just so – I mean, that was, that was quality entertainment. When you're watching the Steamboat matches, you're, you're sitting there thinking, wow, this is a great match as you're watching it. You're not thinking that at all during the funk matches. You're just mesmerized by what's going on. That's why uh, the whole story of it, the whole, that kind of, again, we talked about it last time about the difference between the rivalry and the feud and uh, that kind of, I'm leaning towards putting at least the flair funk match up at two.
2: You know, the one uh, match, John, John, the one match we haven't discussed, I don't mean to interrupt you was, uh, and I don't know if it was in the top 10 or not was the flair steamboat match from Baltimore. Is that uh, is that in the top ten?
0: It nope. isn't, and I think that match not to be. True, oh wait a minute, there it is. Not you mean the the one it's from like March? March. It was the the one from Landover that yes, came I'm out sorry, from yeah. George Michael. Yeah, it, it's not on there because not enough people saw it.
2: Yeah. that
0: might have actually been the best match out of the uh, three. Well,
2: that's the one that that uh, that Meltzer very famously gave six stars to, but again, uh, there wasn't a lot of people that saw it because it kind of got around on bootleg. Uh, the match was taped by uh, George Michael. Uh, no, not the uh, father figure guy. Uh, George Michael was a figure with NBC Sports who every, I believe, Sunday night at 1130 had a uh, a TV show where they would do different, you know, sort of a, a quasi ESPN, uh, you know, kind of sports highlights. And but George Michael was a big he was a big wrestling fan. So he would always show some sort of you know wrestling clip uh, towards the end of the show. And his his production company went down and shot the entire match. I'm trying to think, was it like a. Uh, Jeez, i don't remember was it, was it a draw john or, or do you remember
0: I believe steamboat won
2: yeah i th- i could be wrong yeah you, you know steamboat what now won. that I think about it you're right I think steamboat did go over uh he might have gone even clean in the middle so because they were trying to establish him as a world champion but uh, no that's if you get that that's out there you know it, it's some some people find it hard to sit there and watch a match that's basically uh shot like uh, Without any commentary and and things like that, but uh, if you can find it out there, I want to say it was uh, March like sixteenth, nineteen eighty nine, Landover, Maryland, and uh, it's the uh, the Flair Steamboat match. That, uh, seek that out because it's worth looking at.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the two matches I always say to seek out that aren't that common is that match and Kerry Von Erich versus Ric Flair from Hawaii that aired on the Financial News Network in nineteen eighty five. Uh, Sean, did you have any any Anything else you wanted to add, match of the year?
1: You really can't go wrong with any of their matches. They're always great. and That almost kind of takes away because it's so – you know they could do it just about every time. It's almost like uh, – as, and as Rick would say, we had matches, him and uh, Steamboat, back in 78, which were much better than any of these matches.
0: I would you you beat me to it because I I have friends that watched you know Mid Atlantic wrestling that went to the shows out there and they say that uh, the Flair Steamboat uh, 1989 series could not compare to their 77 78 79 matches in the Carolinas.
1: I do have one question of a match I I just dawned on me right now that I did not I've never heard of I won I'm sure you guys have Bob Backlund against Takata.
0: It wasn't that good. I have no idea what it's doing on here. I saw that match less than a year ago, and I I totally don't get it. Jeff, have you seen that match?
2: I have not, but I heard that uh, Backland got pretty much worked over in that match. He did. Yeah. You so, know, John, I'm just curious. Since you saw uh, all the Flair Steamboat stuff from that year, how would you compare uh, Nashville, Chicago, or New Orleans to the match in 84 at the Meadowlands?
0: Oh, yeah. that's a tough one. They uh, Actually, it's not a tough one. They were all better. The Metal Man's match was excellent. Um, I came out of that show thinking I had like a, a religious experience seeing these two work because I was used to the much slower WWF style. Um, but the matches in 89 were better than that match.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's just something I always wondered because I know you had been to both, uh, you know, you'd you been to that Metal Man show. And so that's, uh, you know, you offer a good perspective on that.
0: Yeah, it was, you know, we in the Northeast had never seen anything like Flair Steamboat, and I was absolutely blown away. And, you know, supposedly from people, I remember when I first started reading The Observer, there were people saying, oh, yeah, that match wasn't as good as a, you know, a regular or a normal, an average. It was below average for Flair Steamboat. Now, as far as my perspective for match of the year, I really think the Observer readership got it wrong. In my opinion, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat from New Orleans, uh, it's its not even in my top five. It was an excellent match, um, but i they kind of swerved me on the finish because we all thought it was going 60 minutes, and it should have. I'll get back to that in a minute, but I thought my favorite match of all time— it, it, if you ask me on a, whatever day, it's either going to be Flair Steamboat from Chicago or Flair Steamboat from Nashville. I think those are the, are the two matches of the decade, the two matches of, you know, my two favorite, and the screw you Dusty finish, as opposed to the regular Dusty finish. The Nashville match was billed as Flair's last chance. We weren't sure coming in who was going to win. Uh, I don't know if, you know, they just changed the plan or there were red herrings all over the place, but there was talk that Steamboat was going to retain the the title. Um and then of course you have the funk angle. So those two I think easily number one, number two. I would put the flare funk I quit match number three, the Baltimore match number four, and I would actually put uh Saruda against Tenru from 6'589 as my number five. I thought that was a great match.
2: Yeah the Saruta Tenru matches were all super, super uh you know uh, heated uh, very good stiff work. It was the beginning of King's Road style. Uh, well, actually, maybe maybe Bird and Hanson started that. But that's that's where the Kings Road style between those two Japanese guys really started taking off. Uh, you know, I, I as I was reminded by a friend of mine, you know, when I voted the Nashville match as the best match of the decade, I, I was actually there. So, of course, that certainly played a part in my evaluation of the match. But to me, you had uh, number one, you had the title switch. You had a. Uh, the the angle with Funk at the end, which was which was so great that Ricky Steamboat, by the way, told me that he wasn't given a heads up on the angle before before uh, he went out there. So you know, because one of the things I always ask myself was, you know, because he and Flair do the handshake and he waves to the crowd he leaves, and Flair does the whole thing where Ricky Steamboat's the greatest wrestler I've ever faced in my life. He really puts him over, and all I kept saying was, why is it Ricky Steamboat coming out here to save Flair? And it was because they didn't bother to tell Ricky about it because I, I just feel like what they could have done is if they had Ricky Steamboat come back in and save Ric Flair or just chase off Funk, you know, while Flair is recovering and selling the neck injury, uh, they've got like uh, two months worth of rematches between Steamboat and Funk that they could sell, you know, they could work off of as, as Steamboat coming to the aid of his, fin, his friend and, you know, and I, I don't, of course, Jim Hurd was in charge. I don't understand a lot they did back then.
1: Well,
0: they wanted to do uh, Steamboat versus Luger, which they had. They were going to turn Luger uh, about four or five weeks later. But I actually agree with you that that would have made a lot more sense booking-wise and put Lex Luger, turn Lex Luger against someone else. I mean, Luger versus Steamboat was a bit of a disaster because everyone cheered for Lex Luger.
2: Yeah, and you know, yeah, I just I, I know at the time I, I believe they were in they had started the contract negotiations to to re up Ricky Steamboat, which of course completely fell through. But uh, I, I just feel like that was a real opportunity wasted because at that point, you know, you're done with the Flair Steamboat series. If you could sit there and say, you know, and as as bad and evil a guy as as Terry Funk. Uh, was made out to be. People might have actually cheered for Ricky Steamboat. Yes!
0: (laughs) I I actually think they would have, and this is, you know, a pretty hardcore audience, but one thing I wanted to say about the New Orleans match is I don't think, you know, they did the swerve where Ricky Steamboat uh, made flair submit at like 58 minutes and 30 seconds. Um... To me, once you do that, why is there a reason for a third match? I mean, Steamboat beat him for the title, and now he has beat him again in the rematch. Why are we doing another Nashville match? I think they should have gone to a draw.
2: Yeah, that's a fair point.
0: And then the Nashville match could have been billed as you know either a 90-minute time limit, a two-hour time limit, no time limit, whatever. I thought it would have made more sense. Anyway, Rookie of the Year 1989, we have Dustin Rhodes at— Number one, uh, Wayne Bloom just missed at number two. Uh, Salman Hashimikov is number three. Larry Cameron, number four. Victor Zangiev is number five. Jeff, can you explain – I know, but you could probably do a better job explaining than I can – who Hashimikov and Zangiev are?
2: Uh, my understanding is that they are uh, – they were guys that I think were on the R- Russian Olympic team or something like that. New Japan and Inoki had worked out some kind of deal with uh, – the the Russians to to have New Japan have those guys brought over. So they really pushed them to the moon and the guys had never worked a pro match before at all. Yep. And you know, so they bring them over. They uh they they would basically sit there and, and do like you know Olympic throws on the New Japan guys. But the matches as I recall really weren't that good. I, I'm kind of kind of really surprised they finished in the you know two of the guys finished in the top five. Uh um, you know, Dustin Rhodes. At the time I was not a huge fan of the guy. But uh, he really got a lot better and, you know, and and certainly uh, made it made it on his own. Um, Larry Cameron looked great, but I really don't as I remember, he really couldn't work that well. But he was a great looking like heel. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I think he ended up dying of like, was it a heart attack or something like that? He 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 died relatively after
0: a match, I want to say. Yeah,
2: like relatively early. But uh, I know they pushed him as like the lead heel in Calgary for a while.
0: Yeah, if I mean, I can see D- Dustin Rhodes. I mean, he really in 1989, he won a lot of respect for me because he went to world class. And, you know, Dallas was not an easy territory to work under Jerry Jarrett. And he was just another middle of the card guy. And he, you know, despite being Dusty's kid, he paid his dues.
2: Yeah, and you know, I will say one thing. He throws a great looking punch. Yes, you you can't deny him that. And you know, the joke when he first started was that he was Dusty's kid, but that the you know his real father must have been Dick Murdoch because he he really so much of his mannerisms in the ring weren't about like Dusty; they were more like Dick Murdoch. And he was built like Murdoch. You know, not his father.
0: You never know. Dusty spent a lot of
1: time on the road. (laughs) Sean, share your thoughts. Rookie of the year. I. I am frantically looking up who half of these people are. Yeah, this easily, I mean, whether you like Dustin or not, this is easily a him year. Wayne had a really good year, so did Mike Enos, who's honorable, honorable Mention. I mean, how does he not break this crew? I see Lee Scott in Honorable Mention. I know one thing about Lee Scott. Is Lee Scott the guy that, uh, Jim Cornette had, had a line on him where he said that, that guy deserves a medal and a chest to pin it on. <laughs> Lee Scott. Super high bumps.
0: Yeah. He was a fun guy to watch.
2: Who was, it? And was, was Bob- it? Was it Steve Sims that was like the president of the Lee Scott fan club or something? I like believe that? he
1: was. <laughs> and Bobby Brad was Bobby Bradley like one of the Battlecats? That's
0: not that Bob Bradley. That Bob Bradley okay. had been around since you know, like 81 or 82. I, I have no idea who this Bobby Bradley is.
1: I would say if this is legit Dustin's uh, uh, rookie year, then absolutely. Uh, I would say him, and the only other two I would be throwing up there uh, are uh, the wrecking crew. Okay,
0: you know what? I mean, Wayne Bloom, I actually really liked him. I thought he was funny on interviews, but if I had to pick a guy, like, okay, you get the first round. This is... A, a draft, and you get to pick a guy and have him the rest of his entire career. I would have gone Larry Cameron. I thought Larry Cameron had a really bright future just based on his look.
2: Yeah, he he was a big muscular guy. Uh, you know, wore the uh, like the uh, well, what is it? Not the hairnet, but like uh, the the thing over you his head. Yeah, the do rag. What am I? What am I thinking here? And but he just had he had a great look. But you know, so did Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious looked great too. But you know, it, it was like uh, I don't really think that's a that far off comparison because uh, Larry really couldn't work. He was gassed to the gills, but he had a great presence. Uh, he looked good uh, when he was in the ring with somebody like Owen or or you know one of the Calgary guys that were really good. He, he came off looking great.
0: I agree with you. Manager of the Year, Jim Cornette wins by a pretty decent margin. Uh, Bobby Heenan is number two. Paulie Dangerously, number three. Sensational Sherry is number four. Uh, Teddy Long, or now Theodore R. Long, is number five. Honorable honorable Mention, rock Baron Gary Hart. Jeff, what's your reaction to this?
2: That's pretty accurate, I think, to the top five there. Sensational Sherry was, uh, you know, she was the exception to the rule in the sense that she was a female manager. I mean, not, not to come off like the sexist a-hole here, but she went in there. She was she was really good on interviews. She worked the crowd at ringside like nobody's business. And she had uh, she had that it factor. And you, you know what it reminded me of, now that I'm thinking about it is is a different version of it. But, you know, when we had a uh, Wrestle Reunion down in uh, Tampa around 2005 – And uh, Joyce Grable, the old remember Joyce Grable, the old lady wrestler. Oh yeah, she came Mm -hmm. down and she worked as a manager. And so I started giving her you know heat at the ringside, and she and I spent the whatever match she was uh, she was managing, we just went after each other at ringside. And when the match was over, she went back to the dressing room and I ran back around the crowd and she was waiting at the door for me and gave me a big hug. And she said, thanks for putting me over. That nice. was so much fun. And that's, the, you know, Sherry used to do that. kind. Of, she would blow the crowd out at ringside and she was so effective, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a shame she couldn't be ranked till maybe even up in the top three. That's how good she was as a manager at ringside
0: i thought as a ringside manager she was fantastic and she definitely added to randy savage um she didn't detract from from savage she added to him her interviews i didn't think were very good at all um but at the same time they didn't need to be you're standing behind randy savage and she was doing what she was doing at ringside and she was fantastic at it she had no problem like you know taking the the, the girl bump where she she falls in the ring and oh no her skirts up and we see her underwear and the crowd goes wild for it I, I thought she was great at that
2: no she she was tremendous in her role and she definitely deserve deserved where she got maybe even a little bit higher I think
0: I could see that Sean jump in what are your thoughts
2: no, I, I agree about uh,
1: Sherry. Know who else in ECW was? You you won't you won't agree. Well, just because her interviews are terrible usually, but just if you're live at the arena, Francine does a lot of that stuff where she oh, will yeah. really start working the crowd effectively. But yeah, this was a good year for her. I don't get the Teddy Long thing. Um, but you know what the the funny part of this category is? Every once in a while, you'll see one of these guys almost get kind of like an FU vote. <laughs> How does Gary Hart not end up at the top? You almost by us by accident have to end up in the top 5 by the angles he was in over the course of the year and the guys who was tied up and he, he still he ends up Where was Akbar?
0: Akbar was number 6 um and here's my immediate thought you get 3 votes okay you get a first place vote a second place vote and a third place vote who was voting for who was Spending a vote on Skandor Akbar, who really thought Skandor Akbar was one of the three best managers of 1989, he was better than either – I mean it had to be better than one, Heenan, and or Pauly.
1: And he got 12 more points than Gary Hart, who yes. was on TV every week. Well, you know what that not- is?
2: You know what that is, Sean? I think that's the blowback because the Observer readers really were pissed off that Gary Hart was, you know, was was taken on the Mood of thing. And then he took on Terry Funk. And I think it was like blowback, John, if I remember that people that like you said, people didn't want him managing Terry Funk. Terry Funk didn't need a manager.
0: Yeah, and Gary, you know, I, I got the feeling he wasn't particularly popular in the dressing room. I, mean, I remember Jim Cornette did an interview in The Torch where Gary Hart came out, uh, came back to the dressing room, and he had sweat all over him. And Cornette says, well, it must be really hot in the arena because I know Gary Hart didn't do anything to work up that sweat.
2: Uh, that would be accurate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, in
2: Gary's defense,
1: he was not a plane crash, so I don't know how mobile he is.
0: Oh, uh, that's, that's true. You know, but I mean, at the same time, if you've been in a plane crash that, you know, we talked about this last time, don't take bumps, you know, just don't put yourself in a position sure. where you have to take a bump, you know, like the Grand Wizard did.
1: I mean, I mean what are you going to do when you see Rick bouncing around the ring?
0: Yeah, exactly. I would have. I would not. For the first time since 1983, I would not have taken Jim Cornette as manager of the year. 84 through 88, it's all Jimmy Cornette. I would have gone Pauly Dangerously in 1989. Um, Jim had a tough job, and that he was for the most for the most of the year, he was a babyface manager, and those just don't get over except Jim Cornette did because he's Jim Cornette. Uh, but I thought Pauly Dangerously was the best manager, just a shade above Jim Cornette. I would have Sherry number three, Heenan number four. I have no idea who I'd have number five. Teddy Long was okay. I guess we can go with him.
1: He's better than the other two guys. One thing about Cornette that I'd have him as one is because what you said, the level of difficulty. I mean, could they have done more to this guy during this year to make his job harder? No. I mean, they have him hooked up with the dynamic dudes. I mean, it, it was like it was like they're going out of their way to drive him away.
0: Well, oh, I mean, I, I and on some level I think they were. I mean, the midnights we talked about this. Midnights were were white hot in 1988, and it felt like they did everything they could to pour crushed ice on them.
2: Yeah, I think, I you know, I think to some extent Paul Lee uh, getting the votes there, uh, Paul Lee became sort of the new darling of the, of the sheet readers, you know, and as a guy that used to work as a photographer, he used to write articles, he used to publish a magazine, I think he was sort of like one of them, you know, and I think that's, you know, and he was basically, let's be honest, uh, Tom Pritchard to some extent did it too, he was basically doing a Roddy Piper uh, rap, you know. His whole managerial style was essentially imitating Roddy Piper. There's nothing wrong with that. Roddy Piper was one of the great interviews of all time. But, you know, when I started picking up on that, it started annoying me a little bit. I mean, and I'm not saying he wasn't a great manager. He really was. But that just kind of started, you know, like I kind of started seeing through some of the stuff he was doing.
0: I personally thought and, and me and some of my friends, you know, at the time, we thought that the people who didn't like Paulie are nothing but frustrated Roddy Piper fans, and just taking you back, Roddy Piper was pretty much out of the business until like fall of 1989, and I, I thought Paulie was great. Yes, there's some Piper to his personality. Uh, I don't think he, he was a total copy of Piper the way I thought Tom Pritchard was.
2: Yeah, you you watch some Tom Pritchard stuff from Smoky Mountain and every time he speaks on the microphone he's like, you know, let me let me try to pretend like I'm uh, I'm Roddy Piper.
0: <laughs> you oh, know, same so. thing with like world uh when he was in Dallas and in and Memphis in like 89-90.
2: Yeah.
1: What uh what was his relationship with the sheets back then? I knew later on obviously he got really tight with everybody, but um uh, what, could that have helped a little bit? Was he very open with these guys?
0: Uh Paulie he would do interviews with the Torch. He would. He was friendly with people who were, um, you know, were, were newsletter readers, such as myself, such as a lot of pe- people we've had on this uh, podcast before. You know, Paulie would take the time he would talk to you.
1: Yeah, I'm just. I'm wondering if that kind of uh, relationship that he pr- probably some of these people have had with him will, you know, kind of help goose up his vote total there too.
0: I guess you know, in a, a trickle down way. Like I know he was friendly with yeah. Meltzer. He was friendly with Keller. So that. Probably gave him more favorable coverage, and more favorable coverage gives him more votes. But independently, I thought he was the best manager out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, he had a great year.
0: All right. Worst television announcer? Worst number one, Ed Whalen. Number two, Hillbilly. That's all you need to
2: know. That's all you need yeah, to this know should right be, there. This should be the Ed Whalen Award. Yes, absolutely. Should <laughs> be.
0: Number three, Gorilla Monsoon. Four, Lord Alfred Hayes. Five, Vince McMahon. Honorable mention, Mark Lawrence, Bulldog Bob Brown, Frank Dusick, and someone named Tim Dix, who I do not remember. One thing about wrestling it is never hard to find really bad TV announcers, Jeff.
2: Nobody else ever purposely sabotaged an angle because he did not like it. And Ed Whalen used his, uh, you know, his, his little pull that he had with the TV station up in Calgary to ixnay uh, angles that he did not like. And he would tell the cameraman, uh, focus the camera over here on me. Like, what the hell is that? And, you know, it was unfortunate because he did have so much power with the uh, the TV stations and the, you know, the the uh, yeah, the buildings
0: athletic commission
2: yeah and and you know so it was like he was the calgary version of big jim hess you know that that ron fuller talks about he wanted to be the star of that show and it was the you know the devil you know versus the devil you don't and they never and Stu never pulled him off the air even though i'm sure bruce uh had had begged his dad to pull this guy off the air
0: From what I understand, it would have been politically difficult to pull Ed Whalen off the air because he had so much power, as you said, with the TV stations, with the production, and with the Alberta Athletic
1: Commission. He had a similar – it was like Lance Russell in Memphis. He was like the, uh, the sports director or something like that. He was the contact. That was the problem getting rid of him because if you get rid of him, you're going to be off the air. Here's yeah. a perfect example. I know I've gone in vague reason. Here's one example, and it had to do with uh, Bad News Allen against um, Mongolian stopping. He was Archie Gouldy. Archie Gouldy was a babyface, and they had some. The angle was that uh, Archie had, you know, Archie Junior, whoever they some. It wasn't his real son. Go out there against Alan, and Alan wipes the guys out, guy out. Does a pile driver on the floor, and they stretch him out. They out, know, They basically make it look like he broke his neck. And Archie Gouldy then goes on to have one of the greatest babyface promos you will ever hear. You can hear this man's heartbreaking. And Ed Whalen killed it yeah. because he thought it was too violent and he had the show take it off the air. Well, that you're forgetting,
2: you're, you're forgetting oh, one thing. You're forgetting one thing. I believe not only was that a great emotional interview that would have absolutely drawn money, it was the first time the Mongolian Stomper had ever spoken. Yes, Because he, he was the guy that always sat there and let the manager talk for him. And so for the audience to hear the Mongolian Stomper talk for the first time in Calgary, that made it an you know, even bigger deal than it was. So oh, I, I didn't that know him,
1: that. Sir. I didn't know. No, no, it's OK. I didn't know that he'd never talked in Calgary before either. Yeah. OK. So but I mean – and he's – and they pulled the thing off the air. That – I cannot not even imagine how much money that cost them.
0: What year was that anyway?
1: Oh, let me look real quick, but uh I it was I wanna say it was like maybe like eighty-four. That
0: sounds about right. So I, wasn't sure. I thought it, it was like early mid eighties.
1: Don't trust me. This this promo is on this whole bit is on YouTube, you can go find it. It is uh you can just say Archie Gouldy baby face. I'm sure they're gonna come right up. And it, it is incredible. Well let me ask this though.
0: Ed Whalen wins by a rather large margin. He gets uh, 1,761 votes, 296 first-place votes. Do we really think that all of these people watched Calgary Wrestling in 1989?
2: No, you're right. He got he got a lot of votes because of reputation, because uh, Meltzer and The Observer would talk about things that Whalen that were doing that was, you know, sabotaging the promotion. And wh- whether or not Waylon did it like, oh, let, let me uh, basically put the uh, the screws to the promotion here. No, I'm sure he wasn't doing it, because he was friends with Stu for 40 stinking years probably. But in his own way, his own little, here's a little word, a little Machiavellian ways, he was, that's why I said he was being Jim Hess. He wanted to be the star of the show. And, you know, he wanted everyone to know that he was the, he was the the man and he was the big cheese, if you were, if you yeah. will.
0: I mean, you know Actually, he might have looked at it as the wrestlers come and go, but Ed Whalen is the constant. Who knows?
2: Exactly.
1: Well, that's that's what Jim has thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you would be able to answer this, John. What were because I'm sitting there, and by 1989, the hearts would have been getting out. So maybe there would have been some viewership of looking at some of the old videos. Uh, did, were you getting any kind of Calgary sales when you were selling tapes? I
0: didn't have 1989 Calgary. I didn't have a source
1: for it.
2: I mean, any kind of Calgary.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean like, 86, that's what I'm saying. So people
1: would have seen the guy.
2: Yeah. yeah. But there were, you know, there was a big difference between Calgary and like 86 and 87 when Owen was, you know, bursting on, he was the darling of the sheets because he was a guy that had been discovered by the, you know, Meltzer basically was the guy that exposed Owen to a whole new audience. And then in eighty-eight, I think you had Benoit and Pillman were were starting to really come out. By 89, there there weren't really, you know, they, you had your Johnny Smiths and you know, guys like that, but there weren't these dynamic guys like Pillman and Benoit and Owen.
0: I think in eighty I'm pretty sure in eighty nine, Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy went back up there and Dynamite got the book, and he was trying to book a bulldog versus bulldog feud, but of course everything fell apart before that could really
2: happen. Yeah, and uh <laughs> stories of dynamite is Booker are uh, lots of fun
0: <laughs> I can only imagine uh, and you know what there's something to be said Ed Whalen wise like let's say I voted for him but I didn't see him in 1989 I could have said hey you know just based on the stuff that he's doing I don't need to hear him that's the worst announcer
2: yeah uh, you know again no matter what you think about uh, Mark Lawrence, Bill Mercer, David Crockett they never self-sabotage their own promotion,
0: Nope, they never cut their promotions yeah. tires. And speaking of which, I mean, with if you threw Ed Whalen out of there, like, okay, I didn't see him, so I'm not voting for him. My vote would have gone for, to Mark Lawrence in 1989. He was terrible. I feel a little bit bad for him because he was out there by himself, and I don't believe in one-man booths, but he was horrific. I know by 1989, a lot of people had tuned out of world class. I was still watching it, and he was really
2: bad. You know, was he not into? He became a pastor, didn't he?
0: I know he was I, selling used cars at
2: one. No, point. no. I, I think when he left the wrestling business, he became a pastor in the Dallas area. And you know, I you wonder for as much as you know Fritz back in the uh, early to mid '80s was pushing it as a Christian you know yes. promotion. You know, you you wonder whether or not if Mark Lawrence, if his calling was true. Uh, Because, let's be honest, I think there are a few guys out there who are supposedly Christian that maybe work in the audience, but I digress. If his calling was true, maybe he was having some sort of conflict with what they were pushing in Dallas at the time. And, you know, I'm just trying to come up with an excuse for why the guy was so horrible. But, you know, that was the uh, the big – was that Eric Embry time, 89, or was there something else? Yes, sir, it was. Yeah, so.
0: I mean, I agree with what Jeff says. I'm not saying every pastor is a con man, but we all know that some of them are. And it seems like a natural, natural move from the wrestling business to that business, if you know what I'm saying.
2: Well, I'm just saying that I'm not saying, you know, every pastor is bad or, you know, though I'm sure there are some that are bad. But I'm talking about guys, you know, as a matter of fact, when I had dinner with Ted DiBiase, uh, who, of course, is an ordained minister, I asked him, I said, do you think there are guys that basically leave the wrestling career, go out there and say they're saved and work the audience? And he's like, eh, eh, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> he, he didn't want to come out and name guys, but there were guys that I, I suspect that were basically working a whole new audience. Because when you're basically, you know, spending 20 and 30 years of your life from the time you were a young kid working the audience and now your career's done, Here's another audience. And, you know, sometimes when you've got that sort of uh, background, it's easy to find a new set of marks. You know what I mean?
0: I, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, the, yeah. the late great comedian, Sam Kinnison was a pastor yeah. before he got into comedy and he would talk about, you know, Hey, the, the name of the game was, you know, was, was getting people to donate, to put money in that plate and guess who gets a, a
2: percentage of it? The pastor. <laughs> yeah, Good, good. Uh, good answer. I'm I'm going to keep my eye on you. <laughs> <laughs> the but best uh, Sam Kinnison ever, by the way, not to digress for a second. But the best Sam Kennison ever. Did you ever see the video clip where he calls the guy's girlfriend that just broke up with him?
1: From oh, the yeah. Case? Oh,
2: my God. That's just that's you should put a link to that on your show. Hey, guess what, there. Jeff? Oh, my that's God. A work. Uh, it, it was but, a work. It was. But if it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> it, was it was a work. It was the greatest thing I ever saw in my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that just I mean, you know, Sam, you know, he's a pastor and then he does his comedy bit where he calls his girl and it, it, it was all set up.
2: Yeah.
0: Ah uh,
1: man, sorry to burst that bubble. No, I, anyway. Hold on, one quick thing about Lawrence. Yeah. The only benefit he has is the fact that he replaced Bill Mercer, which is the equivalent in football of
2: replacing Rich Cotite.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, just by comparison, but yeah, he's terrible.
2: But by still, comparison, you're bitter about Rich Cotite from thirty freaking years
0: ago. <laughs> oh man!
2: All right,
0: Rich Cotite, who got two NFL head coaching jobs, ladies and gentlemen. Best major wrestling card. Listeners, I apologize. I am still getting over a cold from like a week ago. My voice is starting to give out a little bit, but I'm going to make it. Number one, the 1989 Great American Bash. Number two, uh, NWA National Wrestle War. Number three, All Japan, Tokyo Budokan Hall. Number four, NWA New York Knockout, the Clash of the Champions. Number 5 shytown Chi-Town Rumble. Also getting mentions are Starcade '88, the UWF Osaka Baseball Stadium Show, and the NWA Rage and Clash from New Orleans. Uh, Jeff, what would you have voted for?
2: Oh, the Bash was unquestionably the best show of the year. It was it was absolutely fantastic. Had a great main event. Comparatively speaking to the other NWA shows they mentioned, uh, you know the the stuff in Chicago and uh, you know even Troy, you would have like maybe a couple of good matches on there and then you'd have one just killer main event and that's why people yeah you know, people remember Chicago oh it was a great match between Steamboat you know they also remember the uh, didn't they have that stupid match with uh I don't know if it was the Road Warriors or something where they locked the baby faces in the dressing room do you remember that
0: that was the February cl- February clash. The
2: clash. Okay, I'm sorry, but you know they, they were doing they were just doing dumb stuff, and then they'd have you know just horrific. They'd have like JYD on these cards, and I remember the Iron Sheik who was just Ugh. tremendously out of shape, and they would have these guys on there, and it was like you know turd in a fruit you know fruit punch bowl. You know, it's just <laughs> uh, it was just so like you'd have Steamboat and Flair, and then you'd have the Iron Sheik or JYD match, and uh, you know the Bash did not have one of those matches. Every match was at the very minimum a good match. There was no stinkers.
0: No, I, I agree with you. I think that should be, that was the clear number one. Sean, what do you think?
1: Yep. Absolutely. It was, I mean, they really I'm I'm like trying to be difficult and try to find a show to throw in there that's, you know, just to be you know, just to have a debate here. But yeah, that that was pretty much top to bottom, clearly the best show. Even guys, you're like, even matches you went in and like, okay, this isn't going to be a good match. It was a good match.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm like Jeff. I am happy that I was able to see that show live. Now, so, all right, for, now for the sake of conversation, I mean, clearly the Bash is number one in my opinion. What would you guys say is number two?
2: What What was the uh, the Japanese card that you mentioned?
0: Ah, uh, let me see. The All Japan Tokyo Budokan Hall show
2: was that the one from June?
0: Ah, uh, yep, June fifth. That was the one that yeah, had the, the
2: Seruta and Tenra was the main event. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably go with that one. All right, Sean, what do you
0: think?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there was such a great wrestling that year in Japan. They have they have to have at least a couple shows in there. So that that one sounds pretty good. Also, I, I can't help but notice there's absolutely no WWF show here. There's a
0: reason for that. <laughs>
1: I know. <laughs> well,
0: interestingly, I mean, well, which interestingly, WWF show?
2: You know, there there was also no Japanese women's uh, cards on there. But here's why: because you had the loss of Chigusa and Dump. And all the, uh, you know, all the big stars of the All Japan women left. And at that time, the only real star that they had left was Bull Nakano. And they hadn't yet, uh, Aja Kong had not yet turned into a big megastar. Manami Toyota was still a young girl. So there was a period from like late 88 into like maybe 91 where the all japan women they were still better than any any women we had over here in the united states but they had like a couple of down years before they had the emergence of you know like i said uh, toyota and uh, akira hokuda where they really became a big deal over there
1: Jeff refresh and, my memory
0: didn't they have a mandatory retirement age
2: they did at that point and and at some point i think they must have waived it yeah. but the only one that they waived it on was dump because dump was so just key to the whole promotion. She was like their version of the, you know, the chic in Detroit. They had built a promotion around her and they had not yet set it up where Bull was ready to replace her. Uh, you know, and so that's why there was a fall off because bull was a clear number two and, you know, okay. So now when the number one finally retires, you as a fan sit there and say, okay, now this new girl, well, she's always been like, you know, it'd be the equivalent of like having Robert Gibson suddenly, uh, you know, everybody knows Ricky's the big deal. And and now Robert Gibson is in charge and and Robert Gibson has his good points, but he's just not the draw that Ricky Morton was. And in the same way at that point, Bull Nakano was not to draw the dump. Was she later would become that way, uh, you know? And uh, but uh, they they had that that downturn before they came back up and they rose and they had those cards, you know, like uh, in those huge buildings where uh, what is it the the Wrestle Marine Pad that was like in ninety two and ninety three where they were like going out to to stadiums and drawing houses. So
0: yeah, that but, was ninety two.
2: Yeah, but in eighty nine it was it was like a down year for them. I feel okay.
1: Sean, how about you? Yeah, I would agree to all Japan Joe, right. the one with yeah. Now, the Observer
0: Awards, as we said, they went from December 1st, 88, through uh, November 30th, 1989. I mean, NWA, and they had four tremendous pay-per-views in a row. They had Starcade, they had the Chicago show, they had the Nashville show, and then they had the Bash, and then Halloween Havoc kind of was the end of that. I would probably go... Despite those pay-per-views being so good, the Clash of the Champions and the New York knockout. I thought that was an amazing show. They had the Flair Funk match, which is a match of the year candidate any year. Up and down the show, it was really good. I would probably go that number two. One show I wanted to mention that didn't get an honorable mention was the Clash of the Champions from June nineteen eighty nine in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. You guys remember that one?
2: That was Steamboat Luger, right?
0: Yes. Uh, steamboat and Funk with the Luger churn. Excuse me.
2: Yeah, I thought uh, I thought the Fort Bragg show with the uh, the Steamboat and uh, and Luger was actually a really good match. It was a real heated crowd. The, the I'm, that's one thing I remember about it. The audience was fantastic.
0: It reminded me of an old Boston Garden show going in the summer where there was no no air conditioning. It was blistering hot. Uh, it took place on an army base, so it was a really rowdy crowd. Everyone was plastered. I mean, it was—I mean, someone tried to j- run in and uh, jump Bobby Eaton at one point. It was nuts. Uh, Sean, you remember anything about that show? I don't. <laughs> okay, um, it's worth watching on WWE Network just for um, the the environment. It was crazy. Worst major wrestling card. Now, this is when we start talking about the WWF. Number 1 WrestleMania 5, number 2 Survivor Series, number 3 SummerSlam, number 4 AWA Super Clash 3, number 5 NWA Halloween Havoc and honorable mention Royal Rumble. Jeff, I mean in my opinion the best thing you can say about WrestleMania 5 is it wasn't quite as bad as WrestleMania 4. It kind of ends there.
2: Uh, help me out here. What was the main event of WrestleMania 5 again? Uh Universal?
0: Hogan and Savage.
2: You know, the only thing I'll say is it very well may have been the worst card, but, you know, Halloween Havoc, part of the reason why that was so bad was because the other stuff they'd done in the early part of the year was, comparatively speaking, so good. Uh, You know, then they did, uh, as I recall, they did the thing with Abdul the Butcher and, uh, you know, I think uh, Funk did the plastic bag angle and stuff like that. So it was such a letdown, you know, after the bash uh, in the summer, being such a great card, and then you had that, and it just felt like such a letdown. And even though it wasn't eligible, the Starcade, in, you know, in December was just—I remember such a horrible show because they did that stupid tournament where they had to lose every single match. So that would have actually been—I would have—I would have considered future shock if it was eligible, even, even worse card. But uh, I'll probably say Halloween Havoc then. Just, just to be nice to Sean, I won't pick a WWF card.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually went to the Halloween Havoc show, and, I mean, you know, we were just, like, waiting for that show to get started, and it never did. And we are hoping, like, the cage match at the end would save it, and it wasn't even that good.
2: Yeah, and it had a lot of potential, you know? I mean, it was Flair, Sting versus uh, Muda and Funk, right? Yes. Yeah. In and it, a
0: gimmicked-up cage match, which just detracted from the yeah. match.
2: To, uh, you know, and they were they were using the bad cage. They weren't using the old good cages that uh, that they used to use. Uh, you know, I, I I'm not a big fan of those, like uh, what I call WWF cages. To me, that's that's not a cage. A cage is like the ones they used to use in Florida and World Class. You know, Kerry versus Flair, those kind yeah. of cages.
1: All right, Sean, what are your thoughts? Worst wrestling card, 1989. I also hate the one quick thing. I also hate those cages. I think the first time they used it was for the Bundy match in WrestleMania two, and their excuse was. was that. They needed it for the exercise. I'm like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But then they just kept using it. And it, 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 I agree with Jeff. It's terrible. Um, I, it, WWF was like just one big sea of crap all yes. year long. It's very difficult to differentiate where the crap was. And it's just, it was all bad. I, I just, it's like a 12 way tie. Now, was Super, I don't remember Super Class 3 being that bad.
0: You took the words out of my mouth. I cannot understand how that was ranked number four. That was not a bad show at all.
1: No, I mean, I would certainly, I have no problem throwing another WWF show in there, or maybe two.
0: <laughs> well, they only had so many major events. I think all of them have at least been covered. Um, I mean, the 1989 Royal Rumble was terrible. I personally would go WrestleMania 4, uh, WrestleMania 5, excuse me, for no other reason than it was the longest.
1: Hogan was so tired at this point.
0: Yeah, Hogan was really, you know, I say that. Hogan was, was winding down. He was not what he was in 1984 oh. by a long shot. But then again, when Hogan left in 92, I mean, the WWF really missed him.
1: But and he wasn't even what he was in 1987.
0: I agree. I mean, huh. he was he was starting to just run out of gas, and they just didn't have anyone to replace him. They they never really replaced him until until Steve
2: Austin. So let me ask you a question, and this has nothing to do with necessarily just 1989. It could apply to any year uh, from about uh, 88 on. Do you think, because I never understood why they didn't do this, let's state a fact of life, Hulk Hogan appears to have a receding hairline. Am I correct on that? A bit of one. Why is it that they never did a hair match with Hogan and have Hogan just shave the damn thing off and Vince gives him a ton of friggin' money? <sighs> um, or, or or Eric Bischoff give him a ton of friggin money. Lose the hair, collect the paycheck, and it's gonna be a huge TV deal.
0: I think as a babyface, you gotta it, it, thirty years ago, even if you were balding as Hulk Hogan was, the look was to have a sculet and not shave the whole thing off. I mean, that's just what guys did. And I think if you had a heel not only beat Hulk Hogan, pin him. But if you shave his head, I, I think you would have shaved his mistake.
2: Well, but when he got to WCW and turned, you know, they could have done that. They could have done a step with him and Goldberg, uh, you know, or, or somebody and have him have him do the job. He didn't even have to take a penfall, because, of course, God forbid you should ask him to take a pinfall, lose no. the match on DQ, for God's sakes. But you lose the hair you collect. You know, the way that Bischoff was passing out paychecks back then, it's not like he couldn't have come up with an extra hundred grand. Uh, of that TBS money to give to Hogan and have him shave his head, you know, and then Hogan gets the check in the dress room and decides to, you know, he can still wear that damn do rag that he wore for the, his entire career, you know, or or even better, he comes out wearing the the stinking Buddy Roberts headgear, say, you know, like they do, or or they did it with Stan Lane and and Smoky Mountain yeah, where, know. you know, he's got a hearing problem, so he has to wear that, which was that was, it was great, it was great. You know, with Nikolai Volkov in Florida too, that was always a great uh, shtick.
0: I, you know what? I saw a recent picture of Hulk Hogan, recent as in like this week, and he still has that hairstyle. He's not given up on it. I, I don't think he would have done no. it, number one.
2: I mean, and that very well might be the answer, but I'm just saying I can't believe no one even asked him, you know, it, or that it never got out that, well, you know, Hogan was asked, but he declined. I, I've never heard anything like that.
0: No, I've never heard that either. I, I, to be honest, I wouldn't have bothered asking him, um, be like me asking Carrie Perry, Katy Perry on a date. Uh, but they Did a hair match in the WWF? I want to say in 2002 with Edge and Kurt Angle, and it was just so obvious what they were going to do. Like it wasn't you know Angle was already had already lost most of his hair. It was obvious who was going to win that match. Same thing when they did Paul Ellering and Teddy Long in 1990. Like you know what they're going to do. The guy's already lost 90% of his hair. He's gonna lose the next 10.
2: Yeah, I guess you can't. Uh, you know, I, I finally took the plunge, like, uh, you know, about a, about a month ago, and 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 said, "Give me the, uh, you know, give me the Sergeant Carter look," and 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 took it down to, as they say, on the uh, the razor, a, a two, and then I, I subsequent went down to a one. You know, at at some point, this guy just needs to get over himself and shave the friggin' head. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I,
0: I don't think Hulk Hogan's getting over himself anytime <laughs> soon.
2: Oh, well, you're probably right about that.
0: I mean, he, he was on uh, Instagram or Twitter or something talking yeah, with about. with a
2: towel you know, on his head, yeah.
0: Yeah, and talking about, you know, how he had back surgery, but he's going to, like, you know, get back in and tackle the weights again. I mean, it's like, dude, you're 66. You don't need to look like Hulk Hogan anymore. He wants to
2: have one more match. He's become Bruno or Vern Gagne all rolled up in one. Does he really want to have one more match? Oh, my God. I, I thought I read something. Or, or Not that he does, but he, he said something, I think, on the Instagram post. I'm, I'm looking for one more WrestleMania main event or something like that. Oh, my God. Oh, please. they
0: can't do that. And they will. But they can't. Yeah. But they will. Anyway, best wrestling move. Scott Steiner's Frankensteiner blows everyone else away. 280 votes. Uh, Muda's Moonsault, 111. Uh, Liger with the somersault, somersault Splash, 26. Hogan with the Superplex off the cage. On This is on Big Boss Man, 23. That was actually a hell of a move. And Scott Steiner's Blockbuster Suplex gets 14 votes. Honorable mention, Brian Pillman's Air Pillman and Liger Suplex out of the ring. Uh, Jeff. Your best wrestling move, 1989.
2: Well, I know the Frankensteiner was the big, the big uh, talk of the wrestling world that year. So, you know, I'm not surprised that was one. You know, all, all things considered, though, really it should have gone to Liger because that was unlike anything that anyone had seen, you know, at that point. So I think Liger should have won it. But I completely understand why Scott Steiner did. Because Scott was a big guy. Uh, he was doing a, a great move. So I completely understand why he won.
0: I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, Liger is an extremely small person, you know, doing these moves. Scott Steiner was a great, big, muscular guy who could do
1: these moves that, you know, those are the smaller guys. Some of the smaller guys couldn't even do. Sean, chime in. Yeah, I agree with the fact that it's just his size. I mean, the fact that he was so freakishly big and doing the moves that you would see guys like uh, Liar and Muda and those guys doing. It was amazing. Now, the credit for Hogan's uh, super, I, it sounds strange, but if you look at it, it's not really a Hogan thing. It's boss man. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. uh, when, I, when I saw that move, the first thing I thought of was years ago, um, I think it was like 80, probably around 85, and he took the slingshot from Tully on uh on television and i was like damn that was okay i was like that was impressive but uh yeah he went he went off the top and that was an impressive bump he takes some nasty bumps back then oh yeah
2: he looked yeah, like ray, the future of the business ray Ray trailer was an incredible uh big guy like moving around big guy and stuff like that uh who definitely did not get enough credit it, it was a spectacular move uh you're right but uh, yeah, people have forgotten what a good op- and he was a really good opponent for Hogan, who was in desperate need of a really good opponent at the time.
0: And it was a great gimmick for him as well. And I remember Dusty when uh, the WWF signed him. Dusty got on TV on WTBS and threw a tantrum. You remember that, Jeff?
2: Mm, that yeah. one I don't remember.
0: That's okay. It's it's on there. It's on the network somewhere. Dusty just he didn't name names, but he was pissed off. Hardest worker. Number one, Terry Funk at 250 votes. Number two, Ric Flair 238, uh, Liger 48, Ricky Steamboat 27, and Ted DiBiase 11. Jeff, you have a, you have an idea of who the hardest worker 1989
2: was? Uh, that, that sounds pretty accurate to me. You know, uh, I don't know about uh, if DiBiase was someone I would definitely put in the top five there. Uh, you know, they got no Japanese guys there. Good point. Uh, I would have I would have probably put maybe Tenru. Ah, uh, because Tenru was really—it—it uh, it was a great year for Tenru. He really uh, crashed through that glass ceiling that uh, they had in in all Japan and became uh, recognized as a—you know—one of the two most important figures in the promotion.
1: I agree, Sean. What are your thoughts? This could be your list for the last several years, but yeah, I mean Terry's always pretty much the hardest working guy whenever he's around. So is Rick. Uh, But here's a guy, again, we just talked about it, is Bossman taking some rather massive bumps against uh, Hogan and making him look really good. I mean, I don't know if top five, but I could give him some some, uh, consideration.
0: Very true. I mean, I think it's, it's a race between Flair and Funk. I would say Ric Flair by a hair over Terry Funk. Because, I mean, I went to a show in uh, September 1989 in the Worcester Centrum. I think I've told the story before. But all of the matches stunk, except the main event, which was Ric Flair and Terry Funk. And the guys were, uh, I know there was a hurricane that came to the Carolinas and and made a mess out of their lives. So I kind of get that. But Flair and Funk absolutely saved the show with like a four, four and a half star match.
2: So either way, you, you might, might be able it. to say you might be able to say Flair because Flair worked hard the entire year. Funk worked hard for like the last six months of the year, last seven months, maybe. So There
0: you go. There's the tiebreaker. This will be our last one. and I'm glad we got to this one because this is a, a fun one for me. Biggest shock of the year. Number one, Dusty Rhodes goes to the WWF. Number two, Jose Gonzalez gets a big baby face push in Puerto Rico. This is a year after the Brody incident. New Japan debuts the Soviets at number three. This is what we talked about. Number four, Ricky Steamboat does not re-sign with the NWA. And number five, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson quit the WWF. Honorable mentions, Antonio Inoki gets elected to Parliament. Zeus does a job for Hogan at SummerSlam. Cornette turns on the Dynamic Dudes. Ricky Steamboat returns to the NWA. This is the very beginning of the year. And Vern Gagne's comments on Bruiser Brody. Uh, Jeff, give us your thoughts. Uh, Biggest shock of the year.
2: You know, I don't really think Dusty Leven. Uh, I don't think it was a real shock because he had basically been squeezed out or or forced out of the NWA and WCW. He failed in the promotion in Florida, so where else was he supposed to go? You know, that that doesn't strike me as a as a huge stunner. Uh, Ricky Steamboat when he came back to uh, to the NWA was a real big deal, uh, and you know, quite frankly, Anoki getting elected to uh, you know whether it was the Senate or or. Or the con- you know they call their their Congress I believe they call it a Diet a D I E T and I mean that's a pretty big deal and you know and I think a couple years after this Hiroshi Hasi got elected to the same same uh, you know position I mean, I mean think about it think about if somebody like Hulk Hogan got elected to Congress that's that's basically the equivalent of what we're talking about here God yes. forbid
1: Sean yeah, what do you think so I sense some a little bit of sarcasm in some spots here uh, like uh, Zeus does job for Hogan. Is amusing. Jim Cornette turns on the dynamic dudes. It seems like an odd choice. But uh, the thing with Dusty is I think it's more of a visual. It's not shocking because it's, you know, you know that he had nowhere else to go. But it's like seeing O.J. Simpson in the Ram or uh, Joe Namath in the Rams uniform. It doesn't look right.
2: Yeah. Well, and then especially because Vince basically humiliated him and, you know, it, but it was it was the guy that was always. Uh, sort of the guy that was riding the lead horse for the NWA finally caved and went, went to Vince like everybody else seemingly did. And, you know, so, so the, to your point, that's absolutely correct, you know, but it was, it was surprising because he finally caved in. But again, he he really didn't have an alternative at that point.
0: No, he did not. Um, I mean, Dusty's an interesting guy. I mean, he, they were ready to give him the Booker position in December when they first bought the company and Dusty went out and did that angle where the road warriors stabbed him in the eye and there was blood on TV, which they weren't supposed to have. I mean, Dusty kind of burned that bridge.
2: Dusty's ego was so big that Dusty would not allow himself to become a middle of the card guy like he probably should have done. He he could not become what Bill Dundee was in Mid-South in 1985. Bill Dundee w- was, was putting himself on the cards. He was a middle of the card guy. Dusty could not work himself down the ladder the way that he should have, and he, he could not, you know, then again, he didn't have that Magnum TA that he, you know, to replace him, he hadn't recreated that guy yet, and so he his ego, he couldn't swallow his ego enough to, to work his way down the card. And the really great bookers that are wrestlers, guys like, you know, Giant Baba, and, uh, you know, and, and even Bill Watts, Bill Watts was able to walk away and still control things, but God bless him, Dusty just couldn't do that. And that's why he ended up getting humiliated in the WWE.
0: Well, yeah. Two quick things about about Dusty in 1989. As we wrap up, uh, number one, I have been told by someone who's pretty credible that Dusty was going to get a new contract. Uh, you know, from the new company, it was going to be right in the contract that Dusty Rhodes had to turn heel. Uh, And supposedly they were going to – he was going to be the king of the four horsemen. The four horsemen were going to be a cowboy act. It was going to be Butch Reed, Bob Orton Jr., and Barry Windham and Dusty Rhodes. Uh, This would not have worked. No. No. And number two, you know what? I give Dusty credit despite getting that awful gimmick or a seemingly awful gimmick that he got from Vince, that common man thing where he did those skits that really made him look bad. He got over in the WWF. He really, truly did.
2: No, he, he took it and ran with it to his credit. But, you know, it was like one of these things where he, he did it in spite of Vince's, you know, Vince wanted to basically put his nose in the dog crap and, yep. you know, and, and he, he took it and he made it work and you got to give him credit for that.
0: Yeah, there's a reason why Ted DiBiase's manservant was named Virgil.
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, so, yeah. And and there's a reason why when he went back to WCW, the guy became, his name was Vince, or Vincent, when he went back to the WCW. Yes. You know.
0: Uh, And so a a year after the Wrestling Observer yearbook in uh, 19, it came out like January, February, 1990, uh, excuse me, this one came out January, February uh, nineteen, yeah, 1990, and a year later we were all crying in our soup because Dusty Rhodes was on his way back to Atlanta as the lead booker, and we all know what happened from there. But Jeff Baudrin, I want to thank you for coming on one more time and getting through the the Observer yearbook. It was a great show.
2: Well, I appreciate it, sir. I would encourage all you folks out there to listen to my uh, podcast here on the Arcadia Network, Breaking Cafe with Baudrin and Barry at bowdronpod.com
0: Definitely recommend that show and Sean Goodwin, we thank you for everything you do for our our show and I want to thank our producer Luke Kippelman. He keeps everything in line and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast
1: Network. Go Vols!